What is good, everybody? Yo, happy day after the day after Valentine's Day, everybody. I hope y'all had a great time spending time with your loved ones. You know, it's funny, and, and this podcast is not about Valentine's Day, but this is something I want to talk about real quick. It's funny because I see so many people who will talk about how sad they are being single on Valentine's Day and how they just wish they could have somebody or they feel like they're supposed to be married by now or they feel like they're supposed to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or be married. And I don't know, it's just many, many Christians today believe that it is their destiny and their Christian duty to be married. However, we seem to forget that even the great apostle Paul, which we're going to be reading today, he wasn't married. My boy was single. And elsewhere, Paul talks in his letters about how for some followers of Jesus, it may be better for them to stay single so they can actually focus on following God instead of getting caught up in all the inevitable struggles that relationships bring. And if it gives you any more comfort, For all y'all single people out there who think that you have to be married or have to have a relationship, uh, Jesus didn't have one. So if it was good enough for Jesus, it might well just be good enough for you. Here's a fun little fact. Since we're talking about marriage, or at least that's what I started this episode off with, since we're talking about marriage and relationships, y'all remember Sarah, right? Abraham's wife. I hope by now, if you haven't read through, you know, Genesis 11 through like 15, where you get acquainted with Sarah or Sarai. Uh, I hope you would know who they are and kind of their their story. And I, I bring this up because for those of y'all who know the story, do y'all remember how like one of the very first things that Abraham does after God calls him out of out of the land and away from his family and all that? Y'all remember how the first thing that Abraham does is out of fear for his own life? Offer up Sarah to be taken sexually by the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Do y'all remember that? Look at this. Genesis chapter 12, verse 11 through 13. You can read the whole passage if you want. But it says, As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife Sarai, Look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, Hey, this is his wife. Let's kill him, then we can have her. So please tell them that you're my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Now, there's so many things to talk about here. Because Abraham's plan to just have Sarah tell them that she is Abraham's sister and not just his his wife as well. You would think like, oh, they would say, uh, just her sister. Okay, y'all go on, have fun. But no, uh, they still take her and... um use her sexually and this was because abraham was too much of a wuss to fess up to the fact that yes this is his wife and sarah ended up having to take the brunt of it there's so many things to talk about because what abraham does here is so wrong like right after god calls him out uh, informs him of this blessing that he's going to give him abraham just completely drops the ball and the narrative depicts abraham of being like the snake in the garden of eden but anyway notice that Abraham says to Sarah that they will see her and think she is very beautiful. Now, the first thing that would pop into my mind as I'm reading this is I'm thinking like, oh, we're talking about very beautiful women. I think about my wife. 
of course. I think about women with nice teeth and nice smiles and makeup and long hair. That's like our our generic version of very beautiful women in the culture that we live in today. But let's not forget that Sarah is about 65 years old here. And the Pharaoh finds her to be very beautiful at the age of 65. Now, this really challenges our modern conceptions of beauty because Sarah, living in the Middle East three to five plus thousand years ago, would have had terrible hygiene. She would have had missing teeth. She would have been dirty from head to toe, just like all the people were back then. Could you imagine Sarah full of missing teeth? And who else knows what's going on? Because they just didn't have the understanding and technology back then. But they still found her to be very beautiful. Think about that for a second. Their standard of beauty was so different than ours. And the qualities and stuff that they found to be beautiful are very possible to be different than what we hold to be beautiful today. Just something for you to think about as we hop into what Paul's saying here in Romans 15 that had absolutely nothing to do with the intro. I just thought it was interesting, but like we always do, we're going to read through the verses today and then we're going to break them down verse by verse. Luckily for y'all, it's only two verses, but we spend a lot of time (laughs) on these two verses. So it's going to be Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 15. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. All right, so let's break this down. Verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you. Uh, Another way to put that would be, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So right off the bat, what catches my eye is that it's interesting that Paul can feel confident or convinced that they are really full of goodness when he has never actually met them. If we look back at Romans chapter 1 at the beginning of this letter, Paul explains this very clearly. He says, I'm asking somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So, Paul had been trying to get to the Roman church. He wasn't able to, but he confidently says that they are full of goodness. And I would think that most likely this confidence comes from the word of mouth testimony regarding the Roman church. Because if we hop back into Romans 1 again, we see this play out a little bit more clearly. Romans chapter 1 verse 8. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, right off the bat, um, all the world is not meaning the entire globe or the entire earth. This would have been talking about the region that they were in, the Middle Eastern Roman Empire section of the world as they knew it, um, just to kind of give us some more context here. But at first glance, when I read this, I, I naturally assume that the Roman church would have had this like 
insane miracle working faith that they would have been healing people left and right, raising people from the dead, you know, just like the faith that a lot of uh of modern churches and Christians talk about. And it is possible. It is possible that some of these things did occur. But I, I, I do want to be aware of my modern context and that it might hurt my understanding of what Paul is actually talking about. Because typically today, the big quote-unquote movements of faith in the church, they're not movements necessarily of people coming to believe in Jesus. Rather, they, they seem at times to be movements of uh, huge revival without truly knowing if people are giving their life or following Christ, with massive healings, freeing of demonic strongholds and experiences and movements. And these are all things that really can't be verified. I'm not saying that they don't happen, but these are things that there's been a lot of questions surrounding the authenticity of them. And like I said, I'm not saying that these things don't take place because God can work in many ways. However, we can fall into the trap of thinking that these big movements of faith are only the movements that take place where miracles follow. And I think that we can forget that the biggest miracle of faith is, is not seeing all these massive healings. It's not seeing uh, people being raised from the dead or anything like that. The, the biggest movements and the biggest miracles of faith is purely the acceptance of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. It is purely the fact that we can turn our hearts away from our own sinful desires and our own sinful flesh. And like Paul talked about in Romans uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6, that we're no longer slaves to sin because we are a new creation in Christ. To me, that is the faith that should be proclaimed in all the world. And with that being said, this quote from Barnes's commentary informed my, my misunderstanding with the context of the times. He says this, They were in the capital of the Roman Empire, talking about the Roman church here, in a city remarkable for its wickedness, and in a city whose influence extended everywhere. It was natural, therefore, that their remarkable conversion to God should be celebrated everywhere. The religious or irreligious influence of a great city will be felt far and wide, and this is one reason why the apostles preached the gospel so much in such places. So, as Barnes points out, just the sheer fact that former pagan Gentiles who were in Rome were giving their life to Jesus, and not just saying, hey, we worship Jesus, but we also worship all these other gods, but doing a complete 360 or a complete 180 on their beliefs and their actions within their culture. That was enough to, sh to send shockwaves throughout the Roman Empire. And since Paul knows of their faith, a, a faith that could cost them their status, their comfort, or their life, because he knows that they were willing in the face of, of, of literally being exiled from their land and being judged and, and being cast out of, of cities. And uh, he, he understood the immense sacrifice that would take place for them to not just proclaim faith in Jesus, but to actually live out that faith. Because, for, because Paul knows that, he is able to confidently say, 
that the Roman church is full of goodness. Which should be comforting for all of us to hear. Because if you remember, these last four or five chapters that we've been going over, it really felt like Paul was correcting some very problematic infighting and very problematic theological beliefs. But to Paul, those things that he was correcting do not equate to a status of being evil or being bad. He still views the Roman church as being full of goodness despite all of their theological problems, despite their infighting, despite the the failures that took place within their lives, he still views them as being full of goodness because at their core, they profess and follow Christ. And Paul continues with his praise for the Roman church in the rest of verse 14b. He says, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And just a a quick little tidbit of knowledge that I'll share because I myself, I, I didn't know what this was for the longest time. Uh, But notice I said that Paul continues his praise in the rest of verse 14b. The reason why I say that is because often scholars, commentators, theologians will speak about verses with the letter A or B, sometimes if they're really long, C. And these letters signify the beginning or end portion of a particular verse. So verse 14 here is fairly lengthy. You have a few different points. And the portion that we are now focusing on is the end portion, which would be 14b. So if you ever see that when you're reading a book or anything like that, now you know. But nevertheless, Paul reminds them that they are not only full of goodness, but also filled with all knowledge. And it seems to me that he is speaking of their current state after reading, studying, and implementing the teaching that he just gave them throughout this whole letter. And he could also be speaking more generally of the knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection and understanding the gospel. But, but nevertheless, Paul taught them and us foundational truths of the gospel and our place within it. And what this seems to mean is that Paul expects them to now be full of knowledge regarding the gospel. And that's interesting because I don't think that Paul would say that his last 14 chapters are enough to give any single person, quote unquote, all knowledge. However, his last 14 chapters do inform the readers how important it is to properly understand the entirety of Scripture, including the Old Testament in light of its fulfillment found in Christ. The numerous examples that Paul uses to build his theology throughout this entire letter to the Roman people, it should show all believers how pertinent the Old Testament is. And at least to me, this seems to be the qualification for quote-unquote all knowledge, that they and us now have all knowledge, not because we know all that can be known, But we know where to look. We know how to look for this knowledge. And through this, through this ability, through this knowledge that we have, uh, knowing how to find this knowledge in the scripture, or more generally, just talking about the knowledge of the gospel. Because of this, Paul expects us to instruct one another. Hmm. 
And this instruction is not delegated to just one person or leader. Instruction is not a one-person job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the worship leader's job. It's not just the elder's job. Instruction is a constant back and forth. It's a, it's a mutual exchange between one party and another, similar to the collectivist structures of their time, where giving and, and receiving gifts were reciprocated and often had strings attached. And the same goes with instruction. How can Paul say that they are all filled with all knowledge and expect them to just sit back and only listen and not share the good news that they now know? He doesn't expect that. He expects if you have knowledge that you should be giving it to those who will be willing to listen. And look what he says in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. So this supports the idea that, quote unquote, all knowledge that Paul is talking about, that it cannot refer to all knowledge of doctrine or scripture because he had to instruct them about the various topics discussed in this letter. He says, boldly by way of reminder. That's a nice way of saying Y'all were really getting some things wrong, and so I had to tell you why they were wrong and how to fix it. (laughs) It's really interesting to me how although the Roman church had the knowledge of the gospel and had faith that was great enough to be talked about throughout the Roman world, it was still not enough to excuse them from bold instruction and correction. And this attitude seems to be absent in many Christians' minds today. It, it certainly was in mind, and it's still difficult at times, because we're, we're often taught, and we've been told that as long as a Christian professes Christ, and as long as they say that they believe in Jesus, that we should just kind of leave them alone regarding certain sins in their life. Like, they're just trying, and hey, Jesus forgives, so why don't we just kind of turn turn the other way, and act like it's not happening. And this is really unfortunate. Because for someone like Paul, he loves these people, mind you, who he has never met so much that he finds it absolutely necessary to bring them bold instruction. And the writer of Hebrews says this regarding believers who who are immature in knowledge and in faith, and who may need instruction, but are unwilling to listen. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it seems like our goal is to be like the Roman church in this aspect, that we not only have the elementary understanding of the gospel and faith, but that we are willing, able, and eager to accept instruction. Instruction that may hurt. 
instruction that may challenge us, and instruction that may even expose our sin and call us to repentance. And if we're unable to walk this way, not only on the receiving end, but if we're unable to be the ones that instruct with the knowledge that we have because of letters like what Paul wrote, if we're unable to walk in this way, we can easily fall into the trap of quote-unquote living on milk. But for Paul here, he is he's uplifting the Roman church at the end of this letter. I, I want us to really notice the change in, in tone. Paul has had a loving tone throughout all of this, but through many of the chapters, he has definitely taken a tone of authority, pointing out the, the shortcomings and the problems within the Roman church. And here he's ending off this letter, reminding them and telling them, hey, you are full of goodness. And you're, you're not full of that goodness because of yourself. You're not full of that goodness because of something that's intrinsic inside of you. Because I just got done telling you a few chapters ago how we're all sinners and how we all will just do wicked things if we're left to our own devices. This goodness, it does not come from yourself. This goodness comes from a faith in Jesus Christ. It can only come from one source. And so Paul is uplifting them and letting them know that despite their problems, despite all of the the infighting and the quarrels, he's letting them know that they as as a whole, they're full of goodness. But knowing that they are now full of goodness, they should be able to look to the individual members within their church and their community and see them in that same light. See them and realize that they had a faith that was proclaimed throughout all of the known world. And that they are full of the same goodness as everyone else. So looking back once again, why on earth then would we fight with each other? Why on earth would we argue and fight and slander over these matters of different disagreements? Why on earth would, would we as a Jewish community want to exclude the Gentiles? And why would we as the Gentiles want to try and usurp the, the role that the, that the Jewish people have in the entire history of the world? If we realize that we're all full of goodness, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ, then then we would be able to take the knowledge that we have and be willing to instruct each other, not to demean and not to bash, but to uplift and continue to help people grow in the goodness that Paul saw in them. It's a, it's a change of tone. It's an uplifting tone that Paul is giving to let them know, hey, you're not all bad. There are things that we need to work on and these things will bring really good fruit. But I just want you to know you're not bad. Because of who's inside you, you are full 